So, uh, is everyone ready to get going and do this? We're gonna give this a shot today. Yeah. All right, let's give it a shot. So, uh, welcome everyone to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective reading of Anti Oedipus. We are moving into chapter three which I say thank God, because most of this stuff is things I actually can talk about and understand, whereas a lot of the prior stuff I was having a lot of trouble with. Um, we have a, a fewer admins today, sadly, but we will have uh, a bunch of you. Uh, we're excited to have you join. So again, in the chat, don't hesitate to uh, type in and say, hey, uh, I'm here. I want to say hi. Uh, I'd love to have a comment. You're welcome to. I'm also video recording the chat room. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, really good things said inside of the chat room. Uh, do not hesitate again. If you see something good, star it. Add a star emoji to anything, reaction emoji. It gives us a really good chance to uh, see the best things on the server. But then this video, I figure, can be the accompanying video for YouTube. So as people watch, there's uh, actually some interesting stuff. And our memes uh, as Park Bench or Martini is now doing uh, our memes don't get lost in the shuffle because I will not be describing memes out loud ever. A uh, little bit of housekeeping before we get going. Uh, as always, we are looking for more and more more volunteers, um, mostly just moderation, uh, all of those fun things uh, in order to uh, get us in a place where uh, we have general upkeep of the server, conversations going, all of that fun stuff. Uh, we are continuing to work on the zine. At some point, that will come out. Uh, and we have a bunch of other talks going. You may have noticed the server is a different setup than it was. Uh, the way that the server works now is we have room for a lot of reading groups, and we're absorbing some ones that kind of split off and are sort of returning back home, which we're excited about. Uh, so don't hesitate to hit up an admin or uh, head up into the pick a reading, I believe I called it, join a reading room. Uh, and at any time, you can join any of the other readings. Uh, there's one pretty much happening every day around noon Los Angeles time. Uh, there's a couple different times, I think 2 p.m. Uh, on occasion. Um, I think that's it. Is there any other things anyone wants to bring up before we get underway with savages, barbarians, and civilized men? Just want to announce um, two quick things. One, the literature group will be reading... Borges, The Garden of Twisting Paths on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 12 p.m. Pacific Time. And Simondon will be meeting on Sunday to go over their ongoing weekly session at, I think, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. So be there for that. Awesome. And uh, if there's anything else... Um, all right. Well, before we jump in, I wanted to actually read through, uh, I, I try to do a lot more prep for this session because I think I'm going to be mostly leading this alone. Uh, a lot of our sort of uh, classic experts, uh, had to take breaks, uh, due to work, due to tired, due to whatever. So, um, again, anyone who wants can jump in because you probably have more expertise than me, but I wanted to open up by reading Eugene Holland's, uh, sort of introduction to chapter three and the explanation of what it is as we get going. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and read that through, and then we will start with uh, section one, inscribing the socius. The central function of chapter three of Anti-Oedipus is to historicize social production's repression of desiring production, to show that Oedipus is the specifically capitalist mode of such repression by contrasting it with other modes, 
The account which Deleuze and Guattari provide of three modes of social production, savagery, despotism, capitalism, is best understood not as a history of modes of social production, but as a genealogy of the Oedipus. Genealogy, in the sense of the term Foucault derives from Nietzsche, is based on the premise that historical institutions and other features of social organization evolve not smoothly and continuously, gradually developing their potential through time, but discontinuously, and must be understood in terms of difference rather than continuity, as one social formation appropriates and abruptly reconfigures an older institution or revives various features of extant social organization by selectively recombining them to suit its own purpose. As Deleuze and Guattari put it, the events that restore a thing to life in a given form of social organization are not the same as those that give rise to it in the first place. The Oedipus did not arise at the dawn of civilization with the murder of the father in the primal horde and evolved smoothly through Greek and Elizabethan tragedy into its modern nuclear form, as psychoanalytic legend would have it. The third chapter of Anti-Oedipus shows, on the contrary, that the modern Oedipus was cobbled together out of elements from previous social formations in which they had very different roles to play. Um... See, Varun's got, got it going in the chat. We should have chat. Wish she could join the room. Um, the, the short version is that's essentially the, the entire necessity of this chapter. So as the underlying thing, we'll come back a little bit to Holland as we get through this. Uh, but uh, then with that, I think uh, we should go ahead and just start reading away. Uh, if everyone wants to join us, we are uh, 139 of, uh, I believe it's 139 of the Penguin Edition, and uh, I have the Minnesota Press Edition. It should be identical. Uh, it's uh, 139. Um, if the universal comes at the end, the body without organs and desiring production, under the conditions determined by an apparently victorious capitalism, where do we find enough innocence for generating universal history? Desiring production also exists from the beginning. There is desiring production from the moment there is social production and reproduction. But in a very precise sense, it is true that pre-capitalist social machines are inherent to desire. They code it. They code the flows of desire. To code desire and the fear, the anguish of decoded flows, is the business of the socius. As we shall see, capitalism is the only social machine that is constructed on the basis of decoded flows, substituted substituting for intrinsic codes of axiomatic and axiomatic of abstract quantities in the form of money. Capitalism therefore liberates the flows of desire, but under the social conditions that define its limit and the possibility of its own disillusion, so that it is constantly opposing with all its exasperated strength the movement that drives it towards its limit. At capitalism's limit, the deteriorialized socius gives way to the body without organs and the decoded flows throw themselves into desiring production. Hence, it is correct to retrospectively understand all history in the light of capitalism, provided that the rules formulated by Marx are followed exactly. Okay, let's see, where do we start with this? Um, so they're, they're opening with the concept of, eventually, uh, if we do assume that capitalism is it, and we've hit the end of history, and capitalism is the victorious thing, uh, the question would be, where do we find the innocence that generates this universal history, this this continuous flow that has happened throughout all time? Uh, they talk about how desiring production exists from the beginning. Uh, 
and how it plays into the creation of capitalism. Capitalism, therefore, liberates flows of desire uh, because uh, prior to capitalism, uh, the uh, I'm maybe a little bit jumbled up here. Jack, uh, are you are you there? I am. I was just rereading um, a passage I think is going to bleed into um, what you're trying to move toward. Yes, please. So one of the things that's interesting about this is the role of desiring production um, within capitalism, right? Uh, and right. That's the, the passage that sticks out to me is, um, but in a very precise sense, it is true that pre-capitalist social machines are inherent in desire. They code it. They code the flows of desire. To code desire and the fear, the anguish of decoded flows is the business of the socius. As we shall see, capitalism is the only social machine that is constructed on the basis of decoded flows, substituting for intrinsic codes and axiomatic of abstract quantities in the form of what, what interests me about this passage is um, at one level, the, the so by having flows um, in abstract quantities, that's interesting to me because that means that um, the flows are moving through like um, abstract quantities. It reminds me of Marx and Das Capital in chapter one, where he's talking about use value, exchange value, and labor value. Um, and draw my own background. Um, I used to work in the construction industry, and labor was quantified always in terms of hours relative to specific classes of laborers. And so like we talked about labor in terms of quantities of hours and that we didn't really engage labor outside of that abstract level and because you know that wasn't our role in the office. In the same way this interests me because um desiring production or like a libidinal force, a libidinal energy is talked about through the abstraction of money, which is, uh, you know, in a very basic sense, the, a basic unit of capital. Well, it's 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 how capital and they use the term liberates, and I I like that because when you when you talk about prior to capitalism existing, the previous socius, which would be the caveman era where the earth is the socius, and then you have uh, after that where the despot, uh, the king, is the socius. Uh, the way that flows of desire are coded is so deeply intrinsic to uh, these external factors. It codes so deeply that the repression becomes massive. Uh, and there is a reality. Um, there is a reality that capital, uh, by decoding this and placing it inside of a different structure of coding, which is uh, banks, which is cash, as Vern's saying, uh, then it's this new form, which actually liberates desire, gives it a new chance to really, really flow. But it does so in a way, as they put it, uh, that I really like. Um, um, it liberates flows of desire, but under social conditions that define its limit and the possibility of its own disillusion. Uh, the, the, the desire itself, while being coded into money, doesn't have an, a limit unto itself. But instead, the limit then becomes this social repression, greater social repression, rather than the direct thing itself. Uh, the 
the way that we deal with coded flows in our society is through this social repression. It's very different than, say, the barbarians did or previous socialists did. Uh, and the deterritorialized socialist gives way to the body without organs, and the decoded flows throw themselves into desiring production. And there are analysis through Marx, and we'll get into uh, some pretty deep, very specific things here, especially when it comes to uh, a lot of anus. There's a lot of anus uh, in this section. Um, uh, I think we'll talk a, a lot about how money represents some very, very specific locations within how we deal with social repression at a very, very early set. Gladly, I'm not sure we're talking about object petite A because they're they're not talking about lack or the way that we deal with lack in the same way or even desires as as Lacan would talk about it. They believe de desires are a pure, uh, powerful force that are pushing things outwards. Um, Varun, did you change your name to Jordan Peterson? God damn it. Um, all right. Uh, would anyone like to read the next uh, paragraph? That'd be great. Yeah, I'll volunteer. First of all, universal history is the history of contingencies and not the history of necessity, ruptures and limits, and not continuity. For great accidents were necessary and amazing encounters that could have happened elsewhere or before or might never have happened in order for the flows to escape coding and escaping to nonetheless fashion a new machine bearing the determination of the capital associates. Thus the encounter between private property and commodity production, which presents itself, however, as two quite distinct forms of decoding by privatization and by abstraction. Or, from the viewpoint of private property itself, the encounter between flows of convertible wealth owned by capitalists and a flow of workers possessing nothing more than their labor capacity. Here again, two distinct forms of deterritorialization. In a sense, capitalism has haunted all forms of society, but it haunts them as their terrifying nightmare. It is the dread they feel of a flow that would elude their codes. Then again, if we say that capitalism determines the conditions and the possibility of a universal history, this is true only insofar as capitalism has to deal essentially with its own limit, its own destruction. As Marx says, insofar as it is capable of self-criticism, at least to a certain point, the point where the limit appears in the very movement that counteracts the tendency. In a word, universal history is not only retrospective, it is also contingent, singular, ironic, and critical. So there is... Uh... There's a lot to unpack in this. <laughs> There's going to be a lot to unpack in a lot of these. But let's uh, start with the first line, which I think is very important in their view of uh, history, reality, how things come to be. Uh, universal history is the history of contingencies and not the history of necessity. Ruptures and limits, not continuity. Um, the... Hey, <laughs> The nature of how these things come to be is through a series of contingent events that cause these things to be moving forward, that causes history to move on to the next thing, that causes new machines to be created, that causes these these giant ruptures in time. Um, the encounter between private property and commodity production, 
which presents itself, however, as two quite distinct forms of decoding by privatization and by abstraction, or the viewpoint of private property itself, the encounter between flows of convertible wealth owned by capitalism and a flow of workers possessing nothing more than their labor capacity. Uh, the ter- the deterritorialization that shifted as we moved into uh, the capitalist socius from the prior is not a gradual process. It's not a it's not one that happens uh, sort of naturally and simply. It's very, very, very much about these fits and starts, these contingent events that cause these moments to move forward. Uh, it's a very specific view of history that absolutely is important to the rest of the book uh, because they refer to it quite a bit more. And it may be worth, I know uh, it's not necessarily everyone's uh, favorite reading of this, but one of my favorite uh, books that does talk about this uh, and deeply in this tradition is uh, Delanda's A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History. Um, it's a very, very good uh, a book that goes through this and talks through uh, sort of the domains that give rise uh, to society. Uh, there's uh, uh, the world of economics, uh, the, the way we are, our biology and language that we use. Um, and he, Delanda goes through each one of these and talks about how they cause these moments, these, these deterritorializations. It's really, really phenomenal uh, book. Totally recommend it. Um, no, go ahead. Wanted to make the point too, um, just to expand on what I was saying about um, the abstract quantities of capital and flows, where they write, or from the viewpoint of private property itself, the encounter between flows of convertible wealth owned by capitalists and a flow of workers possessing nothing more than their labor capacity. Here again, two distinct forms of deterritorialization. When I think back to the example I gave of like labor hours and, and that. This this that, that sentence does resonate with me in the sense that when we were putting together spreadsheets to, to try and figure out labor hours, we were also codifying them through capital, um, but in a different sense too. I do think that um, it, it was always interesting that you could take labor hours in this abstract sense and quantify it through um, oh. Thank you. Uh, right. Uh, anyways, you could um, you could take labor hours and change them through different quantities of capital, which is to say, you could take labor hours and quantify them through wage, through profit margin, through equipment that you're spending on the workers, and you could constantly change um, this conception of labor through that means, um, all the while impacting how workers um, or anybody you're, you're really doing this quantification with will be doing the job, right? When you start in, um, talking about the equipment, uh, the, the cost of equipment per hour, um, and you start looking at means of saving cost or increasing safety, that will eventually impinge on how the workers are um, going to do the job or enhance how they're going to do that job, at least that's the idea. Well, so for me, the, the sentence, um, in a sense, capitalism has haunted all forms of society and haunts them in a terrifying nightmare. Their dread is they feel a flow that would elude their codes. Um, speaks very heavily of sort of the, uh, 
I don't know, Zizek's concept of event and a few other philosophers more contemporary that talk about this, the the contingent event that reassesses and redefines history as you look back. Um, uh, uh, do we do not get to the surplus value? Well, we do talk about the surplus value of code, but it's not direct. Um, no, it's it's casually mentioned. Um, the what they're talking about here is that uh, in those previous societies, all these societies, they had very, very strictly coded flows of desire. And these codes were set about by the socius. They were set about by the society at large. And the way that their societies functioned, their flows of desire were held in tightly. But they all had this sort of nightmare. And it's even true in, in retrospect, if you look through their writings, of uh, this reality of these flows being uncoded at any moment oh my god what if a person were to unbridled uh, unbridled is unbridled lust uh, all of these terrible desires what if all of this flew out uh this this sort of nightmare that existed and it's talked about very heavily throughout uh, a lot of the writings even prior to this capitalism is that thing that does that it decodes all of those flows but it does it in a way that's really unique and as they say very cleanly uh, through sort of that Marxist lens, uh, the reality is capitalism has to deal only with its own limit, its own destruction, that the flows sort of by nature are by being uh, socially repressed and by being so decoded but coded inside of cash as a representative. Uh, they have to actually watch for if they're overdoing it. There's no rules of overdoing it. We no longer have the... Um, know your place, know your caste system. You can't do these things. These things are forbidden. We don't really have that anymore. Uh, there is a very, I don't know, there, there is a, a desire for everyone to become the billionaires, uh, to become the, the people who have the total power. And by doing so, uh, the only limitations you really have is the societal pressure to not take it too far. And we're seeing a lot of that uh, come to play, but we're also seeing that sort of end of capitalism as people continue to chase things and continue to do things. Uh, it's it's causing capitalism's faults to become to the front. That's a, they're talking deeply in the Marxist sort of tradition of uh, that that limit of capitalism where it starts breaking down. It it naturally works by breaking and fits and starts. And yes, absolutely, Varun. Um, and so by the nature of that, we have decoded flows that like desire is fairly feels unlimited. I can have anything that I want as long as I'm able to do it within the capitalist economy. But there is a huge amount of social pressure that is fairly unknown that is actually coded within that. And it's it's the repression and it's the difficult part of the entire thing. Um, I, I really like that reading of it from Mark. Sorry, Muskie, go for it. It, so I was just going to point to the text, right? Because what you were talking about is what they're talking about at the very end of this paragraph, right? If we say that capitalism determines the conditions and possibility of a universal history, this is true only insofar as capitalism has to deal essentially with its own limit. So like if everyone wants to have the power and everyone wants to be a billionaire, that's kind of the end of capitalism, right? Because capitalism is based on class struggle and capitalism has to deal with that if it's going to decode flows and liberate desire, right? Yes, I, I I compare it to uh, there was a game I had when I was a child with uh, there was this large plastic tube filled with marbles and a whole bunch of little plastic straws sticking across everything. And your job and every everyone who's playing job is to pull out as many of those straws as they can get over time. 
Uh, and eventually someone's going to break it and you don't want to be that person. Uh, you want to be all the people who have as many of those little sticks as you possibly can. And that's essentially what capitalism has become. You can have as many sticks as you want. Eventually it's going to completely destroy itself and we really don't want to do that. So watch yourself, but completely do whatever you want at the same time. And so it's this weird, uh, double bind that you get put into, uh, not to, they don't call it that, but it is that weird double bind of you're you're completely unbridled. Do everything you need to. We love your desires, please. Now just don't go too far at the same time. And that that isn't a classic coded flow, but it is uh, it is a because the classic coded flow would be you're a pauper, you're a lord. This is what you do in life. It's determined by God and the king. Uh, this is what you have. You don't expect more. Uh, but now it's everyone's free to do everything, even though that's not really fucking true, um, because there's all these social repressions that come with it. And that's a big play into the delusion sort of critique of capitalism is how desires play within this economy inside of a very in my mind Marxist tradi tradition of looking at that. And, and to that point, um, in the Foucault-Chomsky debate, Foucault makes a really interesting point that freedom is established through adherence to rules, right? So freedom is what you're able to do relative to what's excluded. Um, to the point of, of, of capitalism and starting to develop a universal history um, in conjunction with capitalism, I think that is one of the, the more interesting points of the section as well is that because of um, so like when we're talking about the contradictions within capitalism, right, a basic fascination for Marx, it's not just that capitalism is constantly breaking down, it's that capitalism is always trying to restart the engine, developing new engines and that, that it has this incredible way of kit-starting things that don't work, but also making things that do work stop working. It, it's constantly clashing with itself such that um so we talked about how desire is always revolutionary right and that it gets displaced um in the same way i would say when we're talking about the universal history of capitalism and this this idea that it's um it's ironic and critical i think that really speaks to it in, in the way that contradictions especially in hindsight come with a an overwhelming sense of irony um an overwhelming sense of uh, not only, of course, that's the case, but there's almost like black humor looking back on things. I think for sure, and I I want to bring up uh, uh, Varun in the chat uh, is making sure we bring up that there is an ambiguous nature to the body without organs and the rules and the repression that is inscribed upon it. It's not a Ten Commandments uh, like things once upon a time used to be perhaps here are the rules this is the way it's set up um instead there's a lot of ambiguity to it and a a good example of that i mean we're living through a lot of this right now um there's a, a, a video of a guy who was uh, july 4th he went to gettysburg uh to honor his grandfather who died in the war and to visit his uh, grandfather's grave uh and he was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt and 50 people surrounded him with guns and they started threatening him, pushing him, saying they were going to kill him. 
Um, now this, if if anything were to, were to be illegal, this would be it, and this is our hard-written laws. But that's not really how it worked, and the police took him away for his own safety, and they did nothing about the other people. The, the rule of law and the way social repression works is deeply ambiguous in a capitalist society especially. But if we extend that to uh, how far can things go, how, how much can you push the system, how, break, how much you can break things before they really get broken, capitalism lives on a precarious edge. And that, that ambiguity is part of the nightmare that we all have to live with. Yeah, yeah and to yeah, give a really easy example of black humor, uh, in the uh, at least in the U.S., there's this idea that you have to buy American, particularly in the automobile industry, and it's supposed to bring to your mind something like Ford, Chevrolet, GM, and American-made cars, uh, at least so constituted by usually companies that are headquartered in the U.S., but that always ignores um things like BMW that are produced in the U.S. or um, Honda. So there's a certain black humor in the sense that you can almost see somebody making this this remark to you and almost laughing to themselves that uh, there are cars produced in the U.S. that are made in America that aren't American cars in the, the sense of them being from Ford. Um, I mean, also you see uh, the example. Of this is uh, anti-production and the create the create the creation of uh, scarcity. So you know, it's like because uh, uh, I mean, they hold they hold the notion that it's, it's scarcity is almost and scarcity, scarcity is uh, created in some dissipative process almost. And so, I mean, like you know, the country that goes to war to open up new new ways of profit making so it destroys an area to you know find find more ways of making profit off that area that's that's like another thing of like Sosius's sort of contradictions that it uses to its own advantage the breakdowns so go ahead sorry so I'm sort of reminded of what they were talking about with um, when they were talking more about schizophrenia. And I'm not sure if there's a parallel between the sort of schizophrenic, what they call like the autist, the sort of catatonic state that they're describing where they don't really interact with the world. And that sort of anti-production, that sort of capitalism having to deal with its own limits. Like, are those? am I right to understand those two things as being sort of parallel or similar? Or... Because if that's the case, then this desiring production always flirting with disaster, right? Or is it that these sort of structures are set up improperly? Or am I, I, mean, I right wrong? I, with regards to schizophrenia, if you guys read, uh, uh, I highly recommend before this chapter at least, because they lay out so much groundwork on this, is uh, Felix Watery's Chaosmosis. The first, uh, the, the first chapter of that book is just an interview with Deleuze and Guattari and the, the the guy asks him like what was your goal in making this book they say they just reply so the schizophrenic has you know in terms of the schizophrenic process you could if you don't botch the process right you you get the breakthrough but there's also the breakdown and the breakdown is the catatonia because it's the limit when when you're in the state of you know when you're going to that state you're you're reaching this sort of extreme limit and so uh, the the break the breakdown is um, is with regards to primal repression, 
And, you know, that first example of desiring machines get repulsed by the body without organs. Uh, essentially what that happens is that, um, desire machines you know so the schizophrenic he wants to escape the repressing representation so there are two ways right he could either affirm it in its true nomadism of attraction or he could either uh, escape it by falling onto the full catatonic body without organs so in in terms of primary repression and and, uh, primary repression the the, the schizo will fall onto the body without organs when anti-production prevails and when desiring, produ- I mean, and when uh, productive connections get per- get fur- further, I mean, then the schizophrenic affirms both of them. I don't know if that really answers your question, though. I think it does, but I think it just so. I, so then, the, the connection that I'm seeing is that so capitalism approaches its own limit, and is if you know destruction prevails, then we get rid of all of the fruits of industry. Whereas if, you know, we approach its limit and we realize the connection, you know, that desiring production is the more, um, I don't know, the nomadic, right? If we realize the nomadic, then we can move beyond capitalism and that that's maybe a similar process intentionally in this work. Yeah, that's what they call the new earth, pretty much. Okay. Well, speaking of the earth, um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and start reading the next paragraph because I think it's continuing some of these comments we're starting to make uh, and it's worth going over. Uh, Just a quick point before you you go on to that. Go for it, Jack. Just wanted to uh, remind everyone, too, that when they're talking about capitalism, uh, right? they write, capitalism is the only social machine that is constructed on the basis of decoded flows. So we are talking about a universal history, but we're also talking about capitalism as a machine of it. Yes. Yes. Um, actually, we're, man, we'll come back to Holland because he, he talks a little bit about this and hit uh, uh, over and over. But we'll, we'll get to the next uh, paragraph first. Uh, the earth is the primitive, savage unity of desire and production. For the earth is not merely the multiple and divided object of labor. It is also the unique indivisible entity, the full body that falls back on the forces of production and appropriates them for its own as the natural or divine precondition. While the ground can be the productive element and the result of appropriation, the earth is the great unengendered stasis, the element superior to production that conditions the common appropriation and utilization of the ground. It is the surface on which the whole process of production is inscribed, on which the forces and means of labor are recorded and the agents and the products distributed. It appears here as a quasi-cause of production and the object of desire. It is on the earth that desire becomes bound to its own repression. The territorial machine is therefore the first form of the socius, the machine of primitive inscription, the mega-machine that covers a social field. It is not to be confused with technical machines. In its simplest so-called manual forms, the technical machine already implies an acting, a transmitting, or even a driving element that is non-human. And that extends a man's strength and allows for certain disengagement from it. The social machine, in contrast, has men for its parts. Even if we view them with their machines and integrate them, internalize them in an institutional model at every stage of action, transmission, and motricity. Hence, the social machine fashions a memory without which there would be no synergy of man and his technical machines. 
The latter do not, in fact, point to the social machines that condition and organize them, but also limit and inhibit their development. It will be necessary to await capitalism to find a semi-autonomous organization of technical production that tends to appropriate memory and reproduction and thereby modifies the forms of the exploitation of man. But as matter of fact, this organization presupposes a dismantling of the great social machines that preceded it. Uh, I do love uh, this section goes over uh, essentially the definitions of uh, where we started, uh, where the first sort of socialists came from with the earth, how technical machines work, and how uh, sort of the social machines and how to define that. Because when we talk through machines, uh, machines is a tough wording. Uh, apparatus, as Roger pointed out before, is another wording for it. Uh, it is uh, the structures and how things work together, if you want to use a, a setup for it. Um, and these social structures are the things that ultimately are what are driving uh, inside of the capitalist system. Uh, they are the assemblages. Yes, they, they change desiring machines to assemblages in a thousand plateaus. I much prefer assemblages, uh, but we are stuck with the wording we are at right now, because that's the way they talk about it. But the, the, the social machines and the way that they're set up is the thing to consider here, because uh, if we think about someone used the term uh, on a wonderful podcast I was listening to about uh, the legal system. Uh, they were talking about the incentivization structuring. Uh, that's another way to actually describe in my mind the way that uh, social machines have desire and, and uh, commodify desire. They code it because there is a very specific incentivization within many social structures for certain people to have money, certain people to have wealth, certain people to have setups, and we need to live within those. We need to uh, survive within those if we want anything to become sort of something more powerful, if we want to maybe even get beyond it ourselves. And so this uh, paragraph is essentially just talking about the very di big difference between uh, <clears throat> the different types of machines that cover social field and how we inscribe them. Uh, any, any comments on this section so far? Yeah, I wanted to make the point, too, that um, one thing I'm really latching on to is the way they're talking about memory here. So they write, the social machine, in contrast, has the men for its parts. Even if we view them with their machines and integrate them, internalize them in an institutional model at every stage of action, transmission, and motoricity, hence the social machine fashions a memory without which there would be no synergy of man and his technical machines. Uh, I find that really interesting because um, when I think about psychoanalysis and psychology, and, and even something like um, the libido, I think there is an important way that memory plays into all that, especially with things like repression, where there has to be that, that kind of recording, um, but not just like an inscription, there also has to be the memory something you, you can almost place yourself in, something that, uh, or rather something that kind of holds you, um, not just in the sense of the past, but something that you're actively um, bringing with you, right? And so to use an example, um, like this is something that would be important in psychoanalysis for something like ab reaction, which is where you, you sort of go, you relive a moment, a memory, 
and try to achieve a catharsis through it, right? So this is like commonly depicted as a breakthrough in the movies. And that's interesting because something like um, capitalism developing memories or these social machines developing memories that um, can hold us in that sense is going to impinge on on things like abreaction, but also um, it's going to be very determinant um, for the larger sense of not only repression, but also expression. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if, if you want like a really good understanding of how, you know, memory gets recorded, we had that great example in terms of uh, chapter five, I mean, section five and chapter one, where they talk about the operation of the wasp and the orchid and how it extracts a surplus value of the code. I don't think we get into surplus value, but could, could I read this uh, quote by Dan Smith? Because he explains it really well in this paragraph. As long as you're not going to quote Ben Shapiro, yeah, you're free to do what you want. Secondly, find the same distinction between production, what goes on on the molecular level, and we see represented in the product the molar organism. The code operates at a molecular level. For Deleuze, Deleuze, this was one of Lacan's shortcomings. He discovered the code in what we call signifying chains, functioning via metaphor and metonymy. This metaphor works as 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 an exchange for something else, and metonymy. I mean, metonymy works for an exchange for something else, and metaphor is like another form of representation. In the domain of the symbolic, but language or the symbolic is a molar organization, like the organism. The inverse side of symbolic is what Deleuze at several points calls the real inorganization of desire. As Jacques Monod said, the genetic code is not a structure, but a domain where nothing but the play of blind connections can be discerned. The molecular level of the passive synthesis is a domain of chance or real inorganization where everything is possible and nothing is given in advance. Every coding, in other words, entails a constant decoding from where it came from. Genetic code points to a genic decoding. This, then, is the primary sense of Deleuze's Deleuze's distinction between molecular and molar social formations. If you could say a few things really quick on that, just to bring it back. I, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, again. I think it's important to say this a lot of times because I think a lot of people meant to forget it. Right? It's that uh, on 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 these uh, sources where inscription is occurring, there's both there's both an art since since everything is being recorded and everything is is not. I mean, it depends on you know it depends on the movement, the ebbs and the because the body without organs is uh, it doesn't actually produce anything. It, it works in sort of you know it, it nudges away certain things that let certain things come in. It, it works as a sort of selection mechanism. But the thing is that um, even repress it, well, at the same time, like opportunities of multiple creations and multiple creativity come on it, even repressing representations come on it too, as we saw in the last case regard B to Oedipus. Oh, okay. So, okay. So when we're talking about the recording mechanisms, uh, they're, I mean, they're they're I, they're effectively blind. Body without organ has none. Uh, but what does get inscribed upon it is almost determinate by is similar to the semiotic change that Lacan talked about, actually. But in a sort of I don't want to say grander. That's probably the wrong word for it. But uh, there is a a bit of a rhyme and reason that these things become appropriated. So if we want to talk about even repressive. Uh, reality that isn't reality, but representations of it. Uh, 
Ben Shapiro's True Allegiance, which, if you haven't read it, is actually a pretty extraordinary book, uh, I think. Not not in a good way, but in a holy shit, I get a vision into someone else's head kind of thing. Uh, it's like a fever dream of a conservative. Uh, those things become deeply recorded. And so if we want to talk about a real-world example of that, it's uh, Trump talking about how real Americans uh, will fight for the statues that uh, the Founding Fathers wanted. And he's talking about even the statues of the people who fought the United States on the Confederacy. So these these repressive stories uh, are even ones that are recorded. Is that essentially what you're talking about? Or did I go off on a fucked up tangent? I don't know if that's exactly what I was talking about, to be honest. Because, I mean, the, the, the thing is that it's uh, repressing representation works as if you know, they say, what does the body without organs do? If the desiring machines are there working in a system, where, to, where, where should one machine cut the flow? Where should it break the flow? And the role of that is the role of the, of the body without organs. And as I said before, it's with regards to semiotization. So it's, 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 where, it's where almost the user identifies themselves with the so-called circle place, right? That's why, you know, so you have inclusive disjunctions and exclusive disjunctions. You're either man or woman. Well, the schizo is man or woman or, or Polish in the same way Nietzsche is Polish. Right. Okay. I found the, the uh, example or the use of the earth in the first part of the paragraph to be really interesting as well. Um, kind of reminded me of um, and some other interpretations of the earth as like the um, almost like um, something that grounds claims of grounding sort of the earth as like an overarching grounding factor in regard to certain different things. I just, uh, I, w- I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. And that does build on, um, I remember Martz and, and Das Capital, I think he um, almost opens up the book with something along the lines of um, all Right, there's nature around man, and man's nature is to produce from that nature. Uh, right, so like Marx kind of develops human nature as interacting with the world and transforming it. And in that way, something like the earth has a territory, I believe it's a territorial machine. Right. Um, but anyway, something, as, something like the earth would be um, incredibly important for that. Uh, because it is going to be the source of um, all these partial objects, all these different things that we're going to engage with, harvest, um, and produce other pr- produce through transforming them with. Would anyone like to read the next paragraph? While well, we have Varun LARPing as a neocon, I can read. I can read some. I love it. The same machine can be both technical and social, but only when viewed from different perspectives. For example, the clock as a technical machine for measuring uniform time and as a social machine for reproducing canonic hours and for assuring order in the city. When Lewis Mumford coins the word mega machine to designate the social machine as a collective entity, 
He is literally correct, although he limits its application to the barbarian despotic institution. If more or less in agreement with Rouleau's classic definition, one can consider the machine to be the combination of solid elements, each having its specialized function and operating under human control in order to transit, transmit a movement and perform a task, then the human machine was indeed a true machine. The social machine is literally a machine, irrespective of any metaphor, inasmuch as it exhibits an immobile motor and undertakes a variety of interventions. Flows are set apart, elements are detached from a chain, and portions of the tasks to be performed are distributed. Coding the flows implies all these operations. This is the social machine's supreme task inasmuch as the apportioning of production corresponds to ex extractions from the chain, resulting in a residual share for each member in a global system of desire and destiny that organizes the productions of production, the productions of recording, and the productions of consumption. Flows of women and children, flows of her her herds and of seed, sperm flows, flows of shit, menstrual flows, nothing must escape coding. The primitive territorial machine with its immobile motor, the earth, is already a social machine, a mega machine that codes the lows of production, the flows of means of production of producers and consumers. The full body of the goddess earth gathers to itself the cultivable species, the agricultural implements and the human organs. So uh, I know we have um, we had a few people who mentioned that they wanted to uh, spend a few moments talking about this section, but um, I just want to go over just as a quick summary for those who are listening before we get into a lot of uh, very specifics here. This is we we talked early on and we went over a number of times earlier in the book what exactly they mean by machine and desiring machine and social machine and all of these things and. Uh, one of the things that they what that I love here, and it's been sort of taken in the work of like Latour, for example, is the idea that not as an allegory, that these collections of people, these collections of people are a machine by any any specific reality. And the ability for us to uh, uh, start looking at these things as though they are machines, where are they incentivized, how they are built, and how they can move things towards different directions, I think is a very unique way of looking at the structures of society and it's one that i it feels as though we've started really taking things and it's it's been good but i know we had a uh, musky you said you wanted to chat a little bit about this was it you uh well the machines oh yeah yeah uh, sorry i didn't hear the key thing so i didn't know my push to talk was working um i was confused about coding so like the way they use code the word coding is like a really rich sort of use of the like meaning so like i get the idea of machines sort of like thinking of these social structures like thinking of humanity like a machine and thinking of society like a machine it, like that makes sense to me it was the idea of coding and decoding where i was starting to get hung up and confused so uh i'm gonna try to say it again uh because i think varun uh 
Dr. Jordan B. Peterson today uh, decided to get into it, and I think it's a good way of looking at it. If we talk about how desire and we deal with things, if we look at the Lacanian symbolic chain, uh, semiotic chain, the way that people uh, sort of uh, take their desires that are this pure, well, there's a paragraph, uh, the YouTubers and everyone else can read that as I go through it. Uh, as we take the sort of pure libidinal energy that is our desire, this 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 fount of creation, this desire to move forward, that is by nature decoded. Uh, and that's the setup. Uh, when we actually put it into things and we assign signs to it, whether it's uh, on a purely social level where we decide that our desire is that of marriage, work, money, uh, Air Jordans, uh, Slack, Discord, YouTube dollars. These are coded versions of our flows. The desire itself is pure. And when we actually code it, we place it into these very, very specific uh, things that allow us to say that we're building something towards that creation. Is that, uh, is that, does that make sense? Oh my God. What the fuck is this? God damn it for him. Um, yes, that, that actually helps a lot. So then capitalism being the decoding of flows is that it's opening up a lot, like, like previously unopened avenues of expression of desire. Yeah. Prior to that, uh, the, the way that, uh, flows were deep, were coded before, uh, was very, very particular. Uh, and they taught, we we're going to get deeply into this sort of in the history of how flows are coded and decoded throughout this entire chapter. This is a sort of a retelling of history, but to very much shorthand it, uh, cavemen, uh, who had to deal with the earth, uh, Aboriginal people had to deal with the earth. They viewed it very, very simply. Their their flows were coded very, very dedicated to this very, let's say, tiny, tiny little hub of what was possible inside of their world. Uh, very few people back then, none, I would say, thought of an iPhone. That's not a, that's, the iPhone gives you a million possibilities. It's in almost paralysis by it. But back then it was, uh, I need to go get food, I need to eat, I need to kill that thing, I need to fuck, I need to shit. There's very, very simple coded flows. Uh, as you moved into a larger sort of socius, the the despot, uh, you have a very different way of coding, but it's, and it's slightly larger uh, if you want to talk about in terms of possibility space, but still extremely limited. Uh, there was a roof, uh, there was a ceiling in everything you saw. And it was a hard ceiling. It's if you were born a peasant, you were that's it. If you were born a lord, you weren't going to ever be king. There was a high point to everything. Uh, capitalism is unique in the sense that we don't have a very we have decoded all of this. We've been said, fuck limits, fuck everything. You can do anything you want as long as it's within reason. Essentially, uh, that's probably a shitty shorthand for it, but it's something uh, Dr. Peterson would say, for example. Uh, Within reason, and just make sure you don't go too far with it. Now, what does too far mean? Well, let's actually have that discussion at any time, but there's no real limit. Uh, Elon Musk uh, putting a submarine in space, that's a thing that could happen. He put a fucking car in space because he was bored. Like, this is a very, we live in a very interesting time where desires are, we have a seemingly no limit, but we all know that there is one. And that that difficulty, that nightmare is is the issue. God damn it, Jordan Peterson. Um, cash, cash is a flow. Uh, haircuts a flow. I mean, sorry, cash is a code. 
haircuts a code, right? And there's a certain code of haircut that a woman enters when she's at a certain age. Yes. Yeah. That code of haircuts. There's a great lecture by Deleuze where he goes, you know, he goes through this very systematically. Uh, the concept of flow actually derives from Keynesian economics. Deleuze takes that, takes that concept of break flow and he creates his whole almost ontology, so breaks and flows. And then, I, I, I mean, then the case uh, to be made then is, so, so it, it, the, the easiest way to understand code is is uh, it's it's the same sort of thing that we had on the body with that organs when we were talking about um, when we were talking about Oedipus being recorded at this points of differentiation in between the sign chains and it's not so much a chain anymore for them because because you know there's no language anymore it's it's there's no it's not restricted to a representation of language as Lacan would say right so I mean the thing is that it's 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 a network and. Uh, it's 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 uh, so it's basically what we have on that, but on on the on the molar level or of the social level of uh, the way an economics functions. Well, and and when I used the term earlier, uh, uh, reason I wasn't talking about reason. When I say like uh, within reason, I'm more talking about uh, almost the term common sense. This idea that there is people who have special knowledge of what those things are, even though no one fucking does, and it appeals to that special knowledge. Uh, and I think that's one of the things they talk about that is inherent to capitalism is, uh, as they said earlier through Marx, that there is limits. Like, uh, there has to be. There's just the way it is. But capitalism pretends like there's no limits, that there, as long as you uh, exercise common sense. And it's a really interesting sort of uh, place that it puts you, and it's it's one of the, they talk a little bit later on about sort of that issue directly. Um, but yeah, the haircut is probably the the best example of that because it's such a very, very specific thing. Uh, the same way that clothing uh, is coded. Uh, if you look at certain people, you can tell their age literally by how they wear their pants. Uh, and that's that's not a thing that happens like as you get older, you naturally wear your pants higher. That, that was the style then. It's the style they've carried forward. We now associate with old people because it's old fucking people doing it. Um, but it's the, the coded realities of these things. But capitalism pushes uh, very simple. I'm going to read uh, Leith Mason. It's a great line. Maybe there have been different logics of social production over time from a direct connection to the earth to an abstraction into despotic kinship and capitalism, all of which have been have given form to desiring production over time. That's a great fucking line. Um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to say. And you said it better than me. So I'm just going to let that be where we end that conversation. <laughs> um, would anyone like to uh, read the next uh, paragraph or I'll dive in? I'll dive in. Um, Meyer Fortz, I'm not going to, I'm anglicizing everything I read. It's the way it works. Uh, Meyer Fortes, Fortes makes a passing remark that is joyous and refreshingly sound. The circulation of women is not the problem. A woman circulates herself. She is not at one's disposal, but the juridical, juridical, Juridical rights governing progeniture are determined for the profit of a specific person. We see no reason, in fact, for accepting the postulate that underlies exchanges notions of society. Society is not, first of all, a milieu for exchanging, the milieu for exchange where the essential would be to circulate or to the cause to circulate, but rather a socius of inscription where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked. There is circulation only if inscription requires or permits it. 
The method of the primitive territorial machine is in this sense the collective investment of the organs. For flows are coded only to the extent the organs capable respectively of producing and breaking them are themselves encircled, instituted as partial objects, distributed on the socius and attached to it. A mask is such an institution of organs. Initiation societies compose the pieces of a body, which are at the same time sensory organs, anatomical parts, and joints. Prohibitions, see not, speak not, apply to those who, in a given state or on a given occasion, are deprived of the right to enjoy a collectively invested organ. The mythologies sing of organs, partial objects in their relations with a full body that repels or attracts them. Vagina is riveted on the woman's body, an immense penis shared by the men, an independent anus that assigns itself a body without anus. Ogurma's story begins. When the mouth was dead, the other parts of the body were consulted to see which of them would take charge of the burial. The unities in question are never found in persons, but rather in series, which determine the connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions of organs. That is why fantasies are group fantasies. It is the collective investment of the organs that plugs desire into the socius and assembles social production and desiring production into a whole on the earth. Uh, multiple people need to believe a thing for it to be recorded. There we go. Short version of that. Uh, it, really, it really is about the sort of collective social machines that we are a part of that are recorded. It's not about any single one of us that record anything. Right, but don't forget, too, it's also things like the clock, where a memory is fashioned in that sense, where the clock mm -hmm. not only represents, um, or you shouldn't even say it represents, the clock not only signifies to us the, the eight hours of the workday, um, or t telling time, but also signifies that we're in a workday, that we're telling time within the workday, within the capitalist mode of production. Um, I'm uh, going to take a minute to read through. I think the 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 parts that really get to me in this, as they talk about ultimately the uh, the necessary parts for this is a paragraph on the necessary parts a thing must have to be recorded. Um, but they talk about uh, flows are only coded to the extent the organs capable, respectively, of producing and breaking them are themselves encircled, instituted as partial objects. Um, things which are recorded, the flows of desire, only get coded when that the organs enable to be breaking them. Hmm. I'm gonna have to take a second to think about that. Sorry. Yeah, I think I might be able to help walk this out too. Is um, so the way the way I'm thinking about this is something like um, since we're gonna be talking about the anus, something like the need to wipe your ass, right? To, to achieve that, you have to produce something through um, through nature capable of fulfilling that um, that need or to, to be a little bit more delusing about it. There's a desire to wipe your ass that leads into the desiring production of uh, producing something like toilet paper or fashioning ferns to do it or what have you. And then when we're talking about that at the social level, we're talking about how it's codified through capitalism, which means that um, it well, means a lot of things, but it means 
at one level, you can walk this out through accounting and say, there's so much labor time, there's so much money, there's the socius that plays into wiping your ass. And you start getting a way of organizing um, production around that. Um, you get into like um, the production of the toilet paper, the production of wiping your ass, but also the um, the need to keep that desire produced, right? Like uh, economists will talk about elasticity, but uh, business people will talk about it through sales, declining sales, rising costs, the payroll and all that. So when we're talking about um, the line Brooks just read and, and the means of circulation in that, and uh, the institution of partial objects. That's one thing that's coming to mind to me. For me, is that capitalism as a social machine does codify um, things like wiping your ass, so as to be understood through cap uh, through the flow of uh, socius of capital. And so we can contrast that, what you just described, the flow of the socius of capital, something like, you know, the toilet paper factory or the soap factory or the bidet factory or whatever. And we can contrast that with what they're talking about, where there's this at the end, um, the mythology sing of organs, partial objects in their relationship with a full body that repels or attracts them, right? Which is a different way of sort of orienting these desires and these desiring productions, because it's more about this collective body that is, uh, less about this movement of capital and more about of like almost literal collect collective body yeah it's fashioning memories out of it too right like they're they're obviously invoking myths here but um and i'm gonna i will not i will probably not find a myth that invokes uh wiping your ass although i feel like if there is one it's going to involve zeus and greece but uh, anyways the collective memory of, of that production, right? So, like, I, I always fall back on accounting because it's one of the easiest ones where auditing plays into memory and is in itself a form of creating a memory, enhancing it. Um, but to, to kind of walk it out in a different sense, something like the factory, which is already rife with memories, right? Rife with significations and signifiers has this sort of memory built around it where, um, you know, when someone says the word factory, it conjures up things like the industrial revolution, um, like production, like there's so much, um, already stuffed into that signifier, so to speak. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then we can contrast that with something like, you know, the anus machine, right? Where there's in these sort of primitive societies that they're talking about that there's, well, ah, I think I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but these myths, the, 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 this is in a similar way, there's a memory being constructed with these myths or with these collective practices that is, you know, uh, uh, social, but also allows for memory to exist in general. Yeah, that would be the collection of the partial objects. So not just the anus, but the things like um, the food coming into the, uh, well, the food breaking down and flowing into the anus and being able to flow somewhere else, right? This is one of the reasons um, plumbing 
uh, there can be an industry of plumbing, an industry of just developing toilets, which have their own innovations, right? Like, you know, we were all laugh at the, the social joke of toilets that sing to you when you use them. But there's a there's a story with that or a kind of memory that we have um, that we're turning over when we we see that in our movies and our culture. And that gets at what they're talking about with codes, right? So capitalism's codes are so complex and varied that they're approaching to being coming decoded. Whereas something, you know, where it was like an oral tradition or whatever, or something less complicated, I guess, is how they're characterizing it. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I think I, I keep this response short because I think they're going to get into this more when they start talking about um, anality. But like you could see a, de- a decode um, something like a decodified um, uh, anal flow, like a discharge in the world, right? Or something like um, how to deal with waste and pollution could be a form of that that um, ultimately is n- no longer decoded, right? It's all codified now but and that's part of how you get the memory of it um but i think when you start taking those forms of production um and those flows and they have that potentiality again where they're no longer um uh full of the signifiers and that that's all been established i i want to go back to the the thing that started this and actually big bart mccoy i makes the comment we're trained to market to specific abstractions of consumers, collective individuals, uh, commonly called personas, is uh, the term I've always used for such things where it's an abstraction of a group of people. Um, the the line they open with, and I needed to do some digging, I apologize for sort of disappearing. That opening line, Meyer Fort is passing mark. The circulation of women is not the problem. A woman circulates herself. Um, <laughs> Maya Forte has spent a lot of time in northern Ghana uh, to, put, to give some background to this sort of comment and where it comes from. Uh, uh, and he did so in you know, mid-1900s, uh, and he wrote a book called Oedipus and Job in, a Job in West African Religion. Um, so he spent a lot of time uh, sort of comparing uh, the uh, Ghanese people to uh, the world of the West. And this comment specifically is about... Um, and it's a, I think it's hitting some of these notes and it's worth discussing. Um, it's not so much, he talks about, it, it's not so much the circulation of women and there's a problem. That is the apparatus that exists within society. The reality is that the women are actually choosing to circulate themselves. They, they go through all of these different cities, they go through these areas, and they circulate themselves sexually uh, to have children with wealthier people and the society or the judicial process determines who they get to have uh, relations with and who they get to procreate with. The the issue is not the circulation of women. That's not the problem. The women are choosing to do this themselves. And he sought, how do we stop this by looking at uh, the individual? And I, it feels like that flows into the rest of this in the sense that uh, the apparatus of society, the the body without organs or the thing that has been recorded on in the northern Ghanese tribes 
is that this is how business is done. You do these things. And so the individuals are making these choices that this is where I'm going because this is the way it's been done. This is the way I've been taught. This is the way religion, whatever it may be. But this is what has been recorded, and I need to do these things. And so the the thing they're calling prescient here is the comment uh, that the circulation one is not the problem. Uh, she is not at one's disposal, but the legal rights governing who she gives birth to are determined for the profit of a specific person. And that societal pressure that exists within that, the way that the apparatus is built, is what determines who she goes with. And that feels like they're talking heavily about just to be a very specific coded flow. That would be one, uh, for sure. For sure. Pretty hardcore one, actually. Um, so it feels like that connects back in. Sorry, I had to do a deep dive. I've been, I disappeared for a minute. Um, that's awesome because that speaks to where they write. Um, it's not about what's essential being circulation or cause of circulation, quote, but rather associates of inscription where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked on, which I think you very, um, accurately described. Yes, I wish they would. I still wish they would give some of their explanations for some of their examples, but this one feels like it's spot on. Uh, women are marked as uh, ones that they want to recreate, procreate with, have children with, uh, force abortions on others. Uh, not a great, it's not a great, it, we will say as the Twitter people would, uh, is problematic. Um, but uh, what he what he talks about is kind of this, this overwhelming societal need and how the society uh, encourages these behaviors. And that the women make these choices very freely. And I would say that you see a lot of that now uh, and that sort of reasoning where people say things like, yeah, but people choose to do this. And it's like, uh, it's sort of not true. It's sort of not true. There's these there's these larger apparatuses that exist uh, at a social level and that people are part of that interconnect and cause us to do things based on this larger story that's happening. And it feels like that's what they're referring to also. They talk about prohibitions apply to those who in a given state or on a given occasion are deprived of the right to enjoy a collectively invested organ. Um, the These women definitely apply to that. It's a, it's a worthwhile Wikipedia dive, I will say. Um, there's a lot in there, and it really does apply to a lot of the stuff we discussed earlier. And it also reminds me, there's no way he didn't at least work with classes or at least read it. So... Um, Society Against the State, one of our other readings, highly suggest. Um, if anyone would like to read the next paragraph. I'll go ahead and read it. Our modern societies have instead undertaken a vast privatization of the organs, which corresponds to the decoding flows that have become abstract. The first organ to sever privatization, removal from the social field, was the anus. It was the anus that offered itself as a model for privatization at the same time as money came to express the flow's new state of abstraction. Hence the relative truth of psychoanalytic remarks concerning the anal nature of monetary economy. But the logical order is the following. The substitution of abstract quantity for the coded flows. The resulting collective disinvestment of the organs on the model of the anus. The constitution of private persons as individual centers of organs and functions derived from the abstract quantity. Don't worry, we will get into this. Jack and I had arguments about this for about an hour before the talk, because this is there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Warren is even compelled to say that, well, our societies 
Well, in our societies, the penis has occupied the position of a detached object distributing lack to the persons of both sexes and organizing the Oedipal Triangle. It is the anus that in this matter detaches it. It is the anus that removes and sublimates the penis in a kind of Offenbung that will constitute the phallus. Sublimation is profoundly linked to anality, but this is not to say that the latter furnishes a material to be sublimated for want of another use. Anality does not represent a lower requiring conversion to a higher. It is the anus itself that ascends on high, under the conditions, which we must analyze, of its removal from the field. I assume analyze is a clever joke. Um, of its removal from the field, conditions that do not presuppose sublimation. On the contrary, sublimation results from them. It is not the anal that presents itself for sublimation. It is sublimation in its entirety that is anal. Moreover, the simplest critique of sublimation is the fact it does not by any means rescue us from the shit. Only the mind is capable of shitting. Anality is all the greater once the anus is disinvested. The libido is indeed the essence of desire. But when the libido becomes abstract quantity, the elevated and disinvested anus produces the global persons and the specific egos that serve the same quality quantity as units of measure. Artaud expressed it well. This dead rat's ass suspended from the ceiling of the sky, whence issues of the daddy-mommy-me triangle, the uterine mother-father of a frantic anality, whose child is only an angle, this kind of covering eternally hanging on something that is the self. Um, to talk about this, I think it's important. There's a wonderful, I'm going to link to it in the chat. Um, there's a lot of anuses uh, inside of this, and it's worth talking about uh, how the anus uh, sort of applies to a lot of things that are happening inside of psychoanalysis, inside of uh, capitalism, inside of a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but this this link, uh, uh, Paolo, go, Paolo goes through an amazing, uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, read, the entire thing. But... I want to read through a specific thing, um, as specifically how the anus relates to capital. Um, to say that capitalism arises directly from anality is thus crass psychologism, but it also misses an opportunity from the perspective of social theory, namely to help explain how capitalism latches onto human drives and twists them to its own ends. For Finichel, as for most Marxists, capitalism is a mode of production that forces most people to work long hours at mind-numbing and or body crippling jobs in a world of coldness and instability. The question that plagued Marxists throughout the 20th century, given this conception of capitalism, was simply, why is an economic organization so grossly misaligned with human needs, not only hanging around, but flourishing? Like Wilhelm Reich, and like the thinkers of the Frankfurt School, Finischel found in the psychoanalysis a lens through which to make sense of the real psychic gratifications provided by capitalism. Amongst other things, the accumulation of money and possessions, literally things that are sat on, is a sublimated form of anal retentive satisfaction, just as lavish spending is a form of anal expulsion. With greater means and towards greater ends, the fantasies of capitalist society allow us to continually replay the highs and lows of our first anal experiences. Uh, essentially, the first time we really get to hold things in or expel things for the pleasure of others is when we're learning to shit. And I will tell you, as someone who has a two and a half year old, and it is not a matter of me being super happy that he's 
going to be a happy capitalist dog or anything like that. You change how many shitty diapers in your day uh, without vomiting. It's an extraordinary experience. And when your son decides that he needs to shoot in the toilet, it is genuinely the most exciting thing that's happened to you in months. And you cheer and you are genuinely elated. There's no way around that because it sucks to change shitty diapers. And so my son's first anal experience that he did, made mommy and daddy very happy is when he was able to hold in and expel it at the right time. Caring about others, understanding the social pressures of the shit of his ass and the way all of that interacts. It is a very interesting thing for us to realize that this is the first thing we do. This is the first time we really learn that we can make mommy and daddy happy by shitting when they need me to and not just at any time. It's absolutely something I can't imagine everyone here didn't make their parents happy by at some point. Unless you still shit your pants, you made your parents so fucking happy and relieved by shitting in the toilet, you wouldn't even believe it. It's just everyone. That's just the way it works. Uh, and they talk deeply, she talks deeply in the rest of this article about that being sort of this moment and this reality around the way that we deal with things um as a at a capitalist level and it's really hard for me not to uh, at least attach to it a little bit especially given <laughs> the recent things in my life i know jack we were having some convos early on do you want to add to this yeah so um i'll make two points um one about psychosexual development and one about um sublimation and so like in terms of psychosexual development right there's five stages the first of which is the oral stage and uh, the second of which is the anal stage and the reason i bring that up is because psychosexual development is intimately tied into libidinal energy right so, which is very much the, uh, an important theme of this book right uh, to say that in delusian terms desiring production um, is intimately tied into the anus to the anal and therefore, in many ways, right, what we create and what can be produced or even uh, what can be cut off through that that machine. And so the point I want to make in connection with sublimation is to expand on Brooks' point, right? So sublimation is a way of, um, it's the way the ego, if I'm not mistaken, the ego tries to redirect desires and redirect um, things like what the id wants, but also um, to take that and put it in into society in conjunction with uh, something like the superego, which is kind of like a form of conscience for Freud, but uh, a social acceptability more so. To, to take desire and make it fit this social acceptability, right? So since we're talking about social machines, right? Uh, there's an inceptibility with capitalism. Sublimation occurs, therefore, when when that desire is redirected and it can be um, fit into um, what, what Freud would call civilization. To give a, a Freudian quote, civilization is all, excuse me, civilization is obeying the laws of economic necessity since a large amount of the physical energy, I'm sorry, a large amount of the psychical energy which is it uses for its own purposes has to be withdrawn from sexuality so to make that point um 
because sublimation because they write sublimation is profoundly linked to anality but it's not to say that the latter furnishes a material to be sublimated for one of another use anality does not represent a lower requiring conversion to a higher it is the anus itself that it sends on high uh, what they seem to be getting at here and to build on to kind of expand on Brutz's example is the way that something as simple as the control we have over the flows um, not only entering into our body, right, because an inevitable part of eating and uh, part of understanding anal development is that what you eat will eventually leave you. It's also the way you, you begin to be able to, to control those flows and to control the breaking off of them. Or if you want to back this up into more Deleuzian sense, right, the way that these, um, the way that there is a, a, a creation of flows and a creation of breaking them off, which can pass, or rather can be organized by the social machine of capitalism. I think, uh, I think in this paragraph too, it's there's a lot of reaching back towards Hegel specifically with uh, with the sub, sub sublimation. Um, and you, you can you can see that emphasized in the use of Aufhebung because this is f- famously the um, the the German term for which Hegel uh, declared that 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 the lack of exact um, meaning of it, the kind of ambiguity of meaning, was actually a virtue and not a vice. That that in, in to sublimate and to is to move past and to break down into separate, but as he argued, kind of unified structural uh, ways. So the moving past and breaking down is this kind of Hegelian sublimation, which is posed here as an interesting uh, constitution of the phallus through sublimation, through a moving past of the penis by breaking down in the sub- sublimation movement, so to speak. So it's probably somewhat of the, the context in relation to that particular terminology. On a, so that that last line um, that they use here when they're talking about um, the anal and sublimation, it is not the anal that presents itself for sublimation. It is sublimation in its entirety that is in that is anal. Anality is all the greater once the anus is disinvested. Uh, these are things I don't fully understand as concepts, and I'm going to make sure we bring them up during our review session tomorrow because um, this whole this whole section is way deeper in psychoanalysis than I was I have any fucking right to be doing um, and I know we have some uh, Freudian experts uh, who actually really love going into this stuff but it's it's a fascinating thing uh, the uh, Hockenheim I, I remember he, he uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong um, but he said uh, I googled it uh, phallic pleasure is the raison d'etre of heterosexuality whatever sex is involved and homosexual desire that restores the desiring use of the anus is the opposing. And it's an interesting uh, sort of way of thinking of the anus as being positive for pleasure, um, positive for desire. It's an interesting twist on the entire thing because there seems to be what they're arguing here as well. When the libido becomes abstract quantity is elevated and disinvested anus produces the global persons and the specific egos that serve the same quantity as units of measure. Is this, uh, 
is is this essentially talking about coding? The libido is indeed the essence of desires, the unbridled flow. But when the libido becomes abstract quantities uh, sublimated effectively, the effect, the elevated and disinvested anus produces the global persons and specific egos that serve the same quantity as units of measure. The dead ass ass suspended for the sea and the sky, the uterine mother, father. That's a whole thing. We're going to have to talk about that during the review tomorrow. Um, if, yeah. If it helps, right? Like the, um, the child is only an angle, right? So it's... It's a quantification through like a triangulation, right? So um, angles, trigonometry, right? The child is um, the sort of like the the degrees between um, mommy and daddy in that sense, right? If you have an Oedipal triangle, the child is an angle of it. Um, to, to put it in different terms too, like... Uh, it's the codifying through abstract quantification as well, right? That where it's, um, you know, you, you begin to be able to ask questions more through quantification of these things, uh, of these libidinal flows, um, than actually like engaging in them, right? It's it's through the uh, the codification that you can have this quantification and this new means of talking about it. Would anyone like to read the next paragraph? We're getting pretty close to the end of the section. I'll go ahead and keep reading then. Um, more anal, if you're all ready. The whole of Oedipus is anal and implies an individual overinvestment of the organ to compensate for its collective disinvestment. That is why the commentators most favorable to the University of Oedipus recognize nonetheless that one does not encounter in primitive societies any of the mechanisms or any of the attitudes that make it a reality in our society. No superego, no guilt, no identification of a specific ego with global persons, but group identifications that are always partial, following the compact, agglutinated series of ancestors and the fragmented series of companions and cousins. No anality, although, or rather because, there is a collectively invested anus. What remains then for making the Oedipus? A structure, that is to say, an unrealized potentiality. Are we to believe that a universal Oedipus haunts all societies, but exactly as capitalism haunts them, that is to say, as the nightmare and the anxious foreboding of what might result from the decoding of flows and the collective disinvestment of organs, the becoming abstract of the flows of desire and the becoming private of the organs? I like the line in there. Um, One does not encounter this in previous societies, any of the mechanisms or attitudes. They have no superego, no guilt. But they have group identifications, even a group collectively invested anus. Um, And again, capitalism sitting over previous socius as though it was a nightmare and waiting for the structure to be broken through. Hmm. Any comments on this paragraph? Just want to connect. Oh, go ahead, Sitz, do you want to? Oh, I, w- I was going to uh, offer to read if, if, if no one had a comment. Oh, okay, then I'll try and be, um, 
trying to think too much time. I, I just want to connect that with um, thus the encounter between private com- property and commodity production, which presents itself, however, as two quite distinct forms of decoding by privatization and abstraction. So in, in this way, we're talking about um, right two ways we can recognize the, the social machine of capitalism, and it's through this level of decoding and privatization and abstraction. Um, and the way that we get private property and the like, the abstract quantification of things. Um, so sublimation has a lot of different. Uh, we were asked by Tiernan uh, in the chat. Uh, please talk about um, what sublimation means. Uh, and at a basic level, there's a lot of different versions of this, but um, uh, I, I take in Wikipedia is the definition I've always used uh, to just read it straight off and be very easy about this. Sublimation is uh, a way in which socially unacceptable impulses or idealizations are transformed into socially acceptable actions or behavior, possibly resulting in a long-term conversion of the initial impulse. Um, the ability for us to take what would be not allowed and turn it into something that's allowed through how we think about it or just simply sublimating, which is sort of that natural like, oh, I've stepped through the door and now I'm good. I've done the thing. Uh, that sublimation uh, is, uh, Freud called it a sign of maturity of a, of a setup. Um, and so that's why uh, anality, uh, which is where we shit, which is a gross thing. Shitting is gross. Poop is gross. Your butthole's gross. All this is so gross. But it's a good thing. And it's here's why these things are good. And we've sublimated it to being able to handle discussing about it. Uh, we've turned it into acceptable behavior. You Pooping is acceptable. It's still not good, but it's acceptable. Even though you're literally just excreting shit. That's um, a... Their use of sublimation here, and as they talk about it, sublimation is surrounded by anality. The, the anus is all is fully subsumes uh, everything essentially that is sublimated. That everything is sub is is anality. Is that a fair reading? Anyone? Yeah, I think so. One of the easy examples for me is um, it's it's socially and uh, reprehensible to um, rip people off, right? You're not supposed to do that um, in a moral sense, or at least in a social sense, because we're supposed to be able to trust one another. However, it is socially acceptable to re, um, to redirect that desire um, into ripping people off if you're, say, a CEO, or if you're a manager. Um, there's ways you can take things that um, are almost taboo, if you will, or that um, that are in uncouth, socially speaking, and redirect them in the social field so that they can become socially acceptable and in that way they're raised up. Or they're, they're- and, and the example I, I go to when I talk about this, and it's a very uh, trigger warning, <laughs> everything. World War II is filled with great examples of this. And when I say great examples, I don't mean good and positive. I mean like uh, extraordinary moments where people found uh, moments in time to find things acceptable that we would find disgusting. And one of the best examples of it is uh, the idea of comfort women, which is something that people still use as a term today. These are women who were effectively just raped. 
just tons of women who were just raped over and over and over. But uh, because of the timing of it and because of the location, and it wasn't like sometimes outright rape, they were allowed for it uh, because of the way that the pressure is within a war torn society and the violence that was assumed uh, is with it. So comfort women became a euphemism for basically rape. And it's still something that they talk about today and, and these words are still used. It's almost to make these things acceptable. Uh, it's uh, disgusting. It's, 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 it's supposedly a sign of a mature civilization, as Freud would say. Um, right. And in anally speaking, that's the way you, right, that can be a displacement of flows in one sense, but it can also be, right, and I'm using displacement there to try and highlight um, something like privatization. And that way, it's to me, it's, it kind of seems similar to displacement. But it's also that breaking off and redirecting of flows. And to mention, just because it's worth talking about real quick, uh, really good movies that talk about this. Uh, Woman Berlin is excellent. Uh, and uh, my favorite World War II sort of how the awful becomes normal is uh, Come and See, which is a Russian movie. Uh, one of the hardest movies that there is to watch. Uh, it's it's almost too real, but also very much uh, uh, makes me. It's difficult to talk about, um, but also it's it, it's very much it's on Criterion. It's on YouTube. Uh, you can find it on YouTube as well. Um, worth checking out. Um, I'll link to it in the chat. Uh, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? Uh, one was a rather short one. Uh, 61, did you want to do that? Oh, right. Okay. Um, we're, we're at the primitive... Wait. Are we at the primitive territorial machine? Correct. Okay. The primitive territorial machine codes flows, invests organs, and marks bodies to such a degree that circulating, exchanging, is a secondary activity in comparison with the task that sums up all the others, marking bodies, which are the Earth's products. The essence of the recording inscribing Socius insofar as it lays claim to the productive forces and distributes the agents of production resides in these operations, tattooing, excising, incising, carving, scarifying, mutilating, encircling, and initiating. Nietzsche thus defined the morality of mores, the labor performed by man upon himself during the greater part of the existence of the human race, his entire prehistoric labor. A system of evaluations possessing the force of law concerning the various members and parts of the body. Not only is the criminal deprived of organs according to a regime, or J, of collective instruments, not only is the one who has to be eaten, eaten according to social rules as exact as those followed in carving up and apportioning a steer, but the man who enjoys the full exercise of his rights and duties has his whole body marked under a regime that consigns his organs and their exercise to the collectivity the privatization of the organs will only begin with the shame felt by man at the sight of man. For it is a founding act that the organs be hewn into the socius and that the flows run over its surface, through which man ceases to be a biological organism and becomes a full body, an earth, to which his organs become attached, where they are attracted, repelled, miraculated, following the requirements of a socius. 
Nietzsche says it is a matter of creating a memory for man, and man, who is constituted by means of an active faculty of forgetting, oubli, by means of a repression of biological memory, must create an other memory, one that is collective, a memory of words, parolas, and no longer a memory of things, a memory of signs and no longer of effects. This organization, this organization, which traces its signs directly on the body, constitutes a system of cruelty, a terrible alphabet. Perhaps, indeed, there was nothing more fearful and uncanny in the whole prehistory of man than his mnemotechnics. I believe that's, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Man could never do without blood, torture, and sacrifices when he felt the need to create a memory for himself. The most dreadful sacrifices and pledges, the most repulsive mutilations, the cruelest rites of all the religious cults. One has only to look at our former codes of punishments to understand what effort it costs on this earth to breed a nation of thinkers. That's a fucking paragraph. It's a fucking paragraph. Uh, I believe it's Nemo. I believe it's Nemotechnics, uh, but I'm not positive uh, on the pronunciation of that. I'm now it's googling a, a silent M, like Nemo, uh, like a mnemonic. Uh, wow. It's uh, it's uh, I believe Latin, probably Greek. I'm probably fucking wrong on that, but it's uh, it has dealing with memory, the machines of memory, the way memory works. I assume. Oh yes, memory techniques and the art of memory. That would be that would be what it is. Um, okay, there's a lot to break down in this one. Um, but uh, before we jump in, does anyone have uh, any thoughts on parts of this or the ideas behind this? Because this is a really dense section that ends with some really dark uh, uh, imagery. I'm open. Uh, I think I think that there's no my bad. Go ahead, sixty one. Um. Well, towards towards the end, when um, we we there's a link of the the kind of collective social memory with the propensity towards like social ritual sacrifices and things of that nature. Um, I think this there's this is something that is very popular. A lot of people have written about this kind of, this kind of topic that part of like social organization may have in an originary sense kind of propelled itself based on um, a logic of sacrifice in which um, some one member must be scapegoated for the continuity of the group to be maintained, so to speak. So this type of organization linked into kind of the symbolic order with like the the order of the memory sort of kind of sp- speaks to what Deleuze's point is here. Um, as far as ne- the Nietzsche stuff goes, I can't speak on about that. Yeah. I was only going to make the point that um, because we're talking about capitalism, a social machine. Um, and its role in all this. One thing that stands out to me is that um, we're talking about a social machine and its role in these productions in the same way that um, we just saw how man becomes an an earth, right? And later on, we're going to talk about a new earth. But in the same way, right, um, 
I like this conception uh, of capital not simply as a system, but as a um, as a social machine. I I do as well. For me, the the ending of this I find to be just a very interesting sort of summation of. Uh, it, I mean, it, it goes through basically uh, what it takes for something to be recorded. But when we talk about recorded, what do we mean? Uh, what do we mean by that? Uh, and it's it's being effectively implanted in our memories. And they talk through pretty cleanly. Uh, Nietzsche says it's a matter of requiring memory for a man. And then they go through what makes a man and how his memories work. Uh, it's the ability to forget, to have collective memories, have these things that are all of these different possibilities. But it ends with um, the reality of the old memory techniques, which were ceremonies. Uh, you would instantiate something through something truly awful that people would remember. You would instantiate it through a sacrifice. You would instantiate it through uh, a military parade through the middle of the town you captured so people would know, so people would remember you own this fucking city. Some of the worst sort of tragedies in history were making that memory and that thing a reality. Uh, uh, going back to World War II, the dropping of the bombs at Hiroshima is 100% this type of act. Uh, the, the, the forced memory, the worst things that exist, uh, that become inscribed. Cruelest rites of all religious cults. One must only look at our far more codes of punishment to understand the effort it costs on this earth to breed a nation of thinkers. Ugh. I can Such speak a, a little. Please do. My brain can't handle this right now. <laughs> well, the Nietzsche, it's all, this is all quotes from the genealogy of morals. Um, and so there's not really, I feel like there's not really much to explain from the original context because what they're doing in this paragraph is just resituating it in the language that they're kind of already using um, for, for their, you know, project in this one, right? So in the genealogy of morals, uh, Nietzsche's describing what they go on to call like the sort of investment in the social body and stuff and the sort of festivals of cruelty that Nietzsche is describing as the sort of uh, basis of memory um, is the same thing as the sort of process of recording that they're getting at. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm reminded of the quote from this book that, uh, the, uh, end goal of nature or something is to, or that the evolution of man is the, the nature invented man so that there could be a being that could make promises, um, which is, I think a poetic way of sort of talking about some of the stuff that they're talking about here. Yeah, and it feels like um, they just finished talking about all the ways anality and sublimation sort of work within each other. And it ends with us literally talking about sort of the sublimation of some of the worst acts in history being done through the lens of uh, recording the memories and marking an occasion or through punishment. Um, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the last paragraph um, because I think it's it'll and we can have a larger discussion because I think it touches on a lot of this. Um, cruelty has nothing to do with some ill-defined or natural violence that might be commissioned to explain the history of mankind. Cruelty is the movement of culture that is realized in bodies and inscribed on them, belaboring them. That is what cruelty means. This culture is not the movement of ideology. On the contrary, it forcibly injects production into desire, and conversely, it forcibly inserts desire into social production and reproduction. 
For even death, punishment, and torture are desired and are instances of production. Compare the history of fatalism. It makes men or their organs into the parts and wheels of the social machine. The sign is a position of desire, but the first signs are the territorial signs that plant their flags and bodies. And if one wants to call this inscription a naked flesh writing, then it must be said that speech, in fact, presupposes writing, and that it is this cruel system of inscribed signs that renders man capable of language and gives him a memory of the spoken word. It's a hell of a downer. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this reminds me of um, Kafka's in the Penal Colony, which they reference in, in um, Deleuze and Guadri reference in relation to celibate machines earlier on. But the way of, um, right, so in the story, there's a machine that's designed um, through this, um, I guess I should back up. There's a leader in the Penal Colony who develops this sort of schematics that effectively only he can read to create a machine whose purpose is to inscribe um, a command onto someone. Typically, uh, well, it's, it's uh, easily comparable with a law. And it writes on their back and it inscribes the command on them over and over again, um, slowly killing them. But before they die, they have a moment of uh, almost realization of an ecstasy where they they almost seem to fully understand, or you might even say they have a sublimation, a raising up, um, an ecstasy, right? In conjunction with this commandment. Uh, what's that uh, other sort of famous way of getting tortured to death? Uh, what's the word for it? It's death by a thousand cuts that Bataille was obsessed with. Yes, um, I'll look for it. Uh, just that sort of limit, right, where horrible pain becomes ecstasy or something sort of sublime uh, reminded me of that. And Bataille sort of is obsessed uh, Lin with Chi. Lin Chi. Lin Chi. Yeah, Lin Chi. yeah the, the Chinese uh, slow lingering death. Uh, really terrible way to go. That's <laughs> as far as it goes. It's really terrible. Uh, I won't describe it, but it's a thing. Oof. Well, that was a emotional downer to end that chapter on. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, actually start ending the discussion. Anyone have any final thoughts as we sort of make our ways through this? Before we head into the review tomorrow? Yeah, I'll say because they're bringing up cruelty, that that seems to me to invoke Artaud at some level. And I, I think the reading of cruelty in, um, for Artaud could probably, I think this could definitely hold. And so it's, it's interesting here because um, in this sense, right, death, torture, and, and these things are desired. So this raises some very interesting ethical questions. Um, as to these desires, as to how to engage them, and that, uh, especially if, um, 
this last part particularly seems important to me. And if one wants to call this inscription in naked flesh so-called writing, then it must be said that speech, in fact, presupposes writing, and that it is this cruel system of inscribed signs that renders man capable of language and gives him a memory of the spoken word, right? This level of, of, of cruelty, of, of death and torture and that, playing into the, the creation of memory, but also into, um, into the use of language and signification. Yeah, there's like... What I'm getting from that is that there's an ambivalence to the word cruelty, where the violence and stuff they're describing is horrific, and I think they intend for it to be read as such. But if it is a precondition necessary for speech, um, then there isn't, it's not all negative connotations, right? Because speech is important, and we get joy out of poetry and music or whatever, you know, along those lines. Um, and I'm reminded of a quote from the genealogy of morals from Nietzsche uh, is something about like, there's so much in cruelty that is festive. Yeah, and that made sense when they write, uh, this culture is not the movement of ideology. On the contrary, it forcibly injects production into desire, and conversely, it forcibly in inserts desire into social production and reproduction, right? In this way, cruelty is a stimulus and impetuous, and a way of, of stimulating um, desiring production here. All right, on that note, I am going to uh, start closing us out. It's We're hitting the two-hour mark, um, and we are going to be doing a full review tomorrow, and we will be going over, I have a feeling, all of this. Um, as always, thank all of you guys for joining us. Uh, tomorrow, same bat time, same anal place, we will be going over anal, 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 uh, a lot. And, uh, and Nietzsche. Anal and Nietzsche, I think, is going to be the main things we talk about tomorrow, which is going to be interesting. So uh, please join us. And uh, again, thanks everyone for joining. It's a, a thank you. group and you guys are wonderful. Thank you very much.